tax team at our current provider is not that great. Could you set up a call in Kruma with your tax partners? Sure. And again, I tell people this openly. There is no mandate that if we place a CFO or controller, you have to give us business. There's no mandate. It's kind of understood. It's kind of encouraged. But I'm not going to stop talking to you if I place a CFO and you don't hire me for audit. That's not the case. But typically, as you know, when people do kind things for you or your business, you want to reciprocate, right? And reciprocity is a great thing. And we've basically built a program around leveraging and capitalizing on goodwill. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Nkrumah Pierre, Director of Business Development and Head of the Friends of the Firm program at Eisner Amper. Nkrumah joined Eisner Amper in 2017 and is responsible for building on the success of the current Friends of the Firm program by training and leveraging both the high potential management group and the partner group at the firm. He also uses his skills as a master connector to develop new business opportunities for and from the network. Nkrumah provides coaching and training to the Friends of the Firm ambassador team in the areas of networking, relationship building, and sales techniques and strategy. By leveraging the skills and talents of his colleagues, the firm creates greater participation, building of business development skills, and more prospect opportunities. Nkrumah is a frequent speaker and recently presented at the Accounting Finance Show, a major conference and exhibition in New York. He is the former co-chair of the Apollo Theater's Young Patrons Board and currently serves as an advisor and a past honoree of the Network Journal's 40 Under 40 Professionals of Color. Listen in for some great takeaways about Nkrumah's journey as a master connector at a major accounting firm and how he connects those he knows, both in business and in life. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the unbelievable pleasure of being with Nkrumah Pierre, the Director of Business Development and Head of the Friends of the Firm Program at Eisner Amper. Thanks for joining us today, Nkrumah. Thank you, Larry. Super happy to be here. Yeah. So listen, I want our listeners to understand who you are and what your path was to becoming the director of business development and the head of the Friends of the Firm program at Eisner Amper. How'd you get here? Sure. Well, we don't have that much time, but I'll give you the uh, abridged version. So I actually started my career in executive recruiting about 15 years ago. And I then started my own business development consultancy about I'd say 11 years into my career. And I started PLG Consulting and we did business development outsourcing. So we did that for a number of different types of companies. As you can imagine, Eisner Amper was one of my clients. So they were a client for two of the five years that I had the company. And I fell in love with the business. I fell in love with the accounting marketplace. I fell in love with the people I worked with. We had a really, really good relationship. I had the relationship with Eisner Amper for about two years. My first year, I was actually offered to come on board full-time, respectfully declined. 
And then year two, a few things had changed in my life. My son was born. Expenses had gone up tremendously. And I really considered coming on full time. So that was about four and a half years ago. And that's been a great ride. Amazing. I think we have a connection to the recruiting world because I think a couple of the folks that you had worked for at some point ah. in your career were Binghamton grads like myself, right? That is right. And I love Binghamton as well. <laughs> I got in early action and I went up to campus. And yeah, when I was at Russell Tobin, who you know, Tim Tobin, yeah. and also Mike Cook from ExecuSearch, where I started my executive recruiting career. So yeah, small world. I think we called him Cookie in the dorms when I lived across the hall from him. So. We still do. Small world. So tell our listeners, you're with Eisner Amper. What's Eisner Amper all about? What do you do and who do you serve? Absolutely. So I tell people I work for a regional middle market accounting firm, Eisner Amper. And recently we were invested in by a private equity firm. But when you think of Eisner Amper, we are a national firm, actually national and international, but we have a very strong national footprint. We provide tax, audit, valuations, and consulting. And we have about 3,000 employees, just about 300 partners across the world. And our headquarters are here in New York. Okay. So are there specific businesses and or individuals that you as a national firm are targeting to work with? Great question. So in terms of my book of business, I'm in business development sales, right? And some people say, don't tell people you're a sales guy. I'm like, why not? I Everybody's in sales. Exactly. Everybody's selling themselves, if nothing else, right? Exactly. Exactly. So when I think of my clientele and the people I speak to, the people I like to be in front of, absolutely middle market. So middle market for many different types of business owners and executives really varies. But for me, middle market is anywhere from $50 million to about $500 million in top line revenue. Enterprise value is what some people call it, but that 50 to 500 million, the sweet spot being about $250 million in top line revenue. These are companies that are privately held, multi-generationally owned businesses. The headquarters really doesn't matter as long as it's in the United States of America. That's on the, we call it the commercial side of the house. Right. Then when you go to the financial services side, where a lot of executives consider us part of big five, if you will. So of course it's big four and they think of us as the fifth. Okay. So when you think of Eisner Amper within financial services, we really punch above our weight. And in terms of the companies we focus on, a ton of emerging managers. So what is an emerging manager? A private equity fund that is starting for the first time, looking to raise 50 to $100 million. So we do a ton in the emerging manager space. And then also the established private equity, family office, hedge fund type of businesses, we do a ton. And so I would say the emerging managers, that's a major focus of mine. And then also the funds that are anywhere from 200 million to 500 million AUM, the billion-dollar funds typically will go to a big four. That happens typically because of the institutional investors and the board members who are on those seats or in those seats. They typically look for that big four brand name on a tax or an audit. But in terms of below the $1 billion number, AUM, Eisner Amper does very, very well. Right. And what about individuals? Are the majority of the individual people that you work with typically tied to those businesses? Or are you also catering to just really wealthy, high net worth individuals as well? Great question. So on the personal tax side, and I typically don't start or lead with personal tax returns, right? Absolutely, we can do it. It's more of an accommodation. So if you have someone at a $500 million 
private equity firm, they're fa- fairly wealthy, right? right. <laughs> they're making a couple million dollars a year, maybe 10 or 15. So of course, we can help them with their personal taxes. But typically, the people that I'm introduced to, like from you and other service providers and folks who are centers of influence, typically, I get introduced to a CFO or a controller at a business. That's typically a middle market business, let's say here on Long Island or in New York or in New Jersey, and they currently have a provider. And typically when I am introduced, someone has made a mistake. Either someone has made a mistake or the business has kind of grown out or outgrown their current accounting firm, mm-hmm. right? They went from $25 million in top line revenue to $200 million. Right. And as we know, it's a different company at that point. So I get brought in for a couple of reasons. One, someone really messes up. Two, a company wants to level up. And then three, it could just be pure, perfect timing where the stars align. And someone says, oh my gosh, Nkrumah, I was talking to my client and they mentioned that, you know, I'm not getting the type of advisory that I'm truly looking for. I have a buddy who owns a business very similar to mine and they got the ERC, employee retention credit. And I said that to my accountant and he had no, or she had no idea what that was. How do you not know what ERC is? Right. I mean, I know what ERC is because I work in the business and I even got one of my prospective clients, not even a client, from a couple of conversations, they got an ERC check from Uncle Sam for $1 million. So if your accountant doesn't know what it is, you're already at a disadvantage. Agreed. Agreed. So now that we know who Eisner Amper is, what they're about, who they serve, right? What is the Friends of the Firm program? I know what it is, but I want others to understand because I believe it's somewhat unique to Eisner Amper from my understanding. And I think it's really genius as far as what it's all about and what it does. So I'm not going to try to articulate what it does. I'm going to let you do that because you're the head of that. So (laughs) can you explain to the listeners what is the Friends of the Firm program and really what's behind that and what it's all about? Absolutely. I'd try to be as concise as possible, but it might be difficult. So you don't have to be. (laughs) We got time. It's okay. The program is super ingenious with regard to the fact that no one else is doing it, right? And we love to be innovators. We love to be super creative. And one thing, as you know, we've known each other for about two or three years, I love to add value. And if I can add value to someone, to their life, to their business, or to their lifestyle, they'll remember me and my organization. Sure. So Friends of the Firm is a program that was developed about 11 years ago by a gentleman by the name of Hayes MacArthur, who actually is the person who hired me when I had my business development consulting firm. And in essence, what we're leveraging with friends of the firm is we're leveraging goodwill. So the program is free. And I tell people multiple times, it's free. (laughs) No, there are no hidden fees. I'm not selling you a used car. I'm telling you the friends of the firm program is free. So now I am investing my time, which is not free, right? But the program does not have a cost to you. right? And in essence, what the program is, it's a network of CFOs, controllers, and HR executives who are former clients, some might be current clients, alumni of the firm, and literal friends of the firm. So you have a neighbor who's a CFO. He's your friend. You introduce him to Nkrumah. He becomes my friend, (laughs) friends of the firm. And the thought behind it and the idea behind it is if we can help people who are underemployed, unemployed, or simply kind of just exploring the marketplace, if we can help them get their next job, and we can land them a job with one of our clients or one of our prospective clients. I was in recruiting for 15 years, as I mentioned. Typically, we would charge 20 to 25% of 
the annual salary. Right. So if it's 100 grand, we're charging you 25 grand, mm-hmm. right? That's a significant fee. And these CFOs are not making 100 grand, they're making 400 grand, right. 500 grand. You can do the math. So if I can help an organization that's looking for a CFO by placing an executive for free, I have a lot of happy people. The person, the CFO who's getting the job, he or she is super happy. Sure. They've gotten a new job through friends of the firm, through Eisner Amper. The person, the company receiving the candidate is even happier because they've saved what? 50 grand, 80 grand, Easily. 100 grand? Easily. Easily, sure. right? So now we have the clients happy. And let's just say that company, the company that I placed the candidate at is a prospective client. So here we go. Remember I said I get introduced when someone is either messed up or the company is trying to level up their accounting services, right? Oh, by the way, I placed the new CFO. And typically when a CFO comes to an organization, they assess all of the service providers, the lawyer, the banker, the investment banker, the accountant, right? So now, no surprise, said CFO gets placed, company A is happy. And then they say, okay, let's look at our current accounting provider. Hey, Eisner Amper is winning right now because they've saved us money out the gate. They've gotten us an awesome CFO. And oh, by the way, the only way to be in the program is to be referred by someone at Eisner Amper. Bingo. They know a partner or two at the firm. So it just makes sense. And the program, I mean, from when I inherited the program just under five years ago, I mean, we are leaps and bounds from where we used to be. I mean, we are now at the point where we're getting referred in upwards of $2 million a year, right? Where collectively, where we have placed people, they get a job and then they turn around and say, oh my goodness, you know, I've been thinking about it. Our tax team at our current provider is not that great. Could you set up a call in Kruma with your tax partners? Sure. And again, I tell people this openly. There is no mandate that if we place a CFO or controller, you have to give us business. There's no mandate. It's kind of understood. It's kind of encouraged, but I'm not going to stop talking to you if I place a CFO and you don't hire me for audit. That's not the case. But typically, as you know, when people do kind things for you or your business, you want to reciprocate, sure. right? And reciprocity is a great thing. And we've basically built a program around leveraging and capitalizing on goodwill. Yeah, I think it's amazing and it's genius because it's really creating this environment that it's a win-win for everybody. It's a win-win for the person looking for a job. It's a win for the person or the company looking for that role. And it's a win for you because now by creating this goodwill, you've created goodwill with both sides of the equation. And for the company, hopefully they introduce you and give you an opportunity to earn or win their business if you don't have it. And if you do have it, you're just reinforcing why they're working for you. And as you mentioned, now you have that CFO in as an ally because you just got him or her or them a role. Right. And now chances are, you know, they may be going to another company somewhere down the line, maybe three, five, 10 years down the line. And they know you helped them out that first time. Maybe they give you another opportunity, whether you find them that next opportunity or not. So it just creates this reciprocity loop, if you will. Of great stuff. Great stuff. What could be bad? So I got to ask you, you are the self-proclaimed and branded yourself as a master connector. Okay. So what does that mean? What does that mean to you? Sure. Well, got to just push back a little bit. Not self-proclaimed. Others 
proclaim that I'm a master connector. And I just, now I'm owning it. You adopted it? Okay. <laughs> I adopted fair it. Enough, I adopted fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, no. But uh, the master connector thing, it's really funny. So it started off as back when I was in recruiting, doing temp staffing, where people would constantly say, like, Nkrumah, you are the king of networking, the master connector. And I, I would giggle. I would laugh. It's kind of funny. <laughs> and it started to kind of catch on because multiple people independently would say the same thing. And when you think of staffing and recruiting, everyone thinks of headhunters, which kind of is a bad word, as being like sleazy or not interested in you, interested in the transaction to make that money because of you, right? But they're not necessarily your friend or your contact, right? Like they just want to get the deal and move on. I was never, ever like that. To this day, I'm not like that. My clients are my friends. My friends are my clients. So the master connector thing. So what I always would say back in my recruiting days is I'm not necessarily that good at sales within recruiting. It's just that some of my competitors are just, in my opinion, so disingenuous, right? And don't really care about their clients that when you compare the two, it makes me look really good because in comparison, wow, I have a big heart. I do truly have a big heart, but when you look at the amount of people that don't care about a long-term relationship, it kind of makes you look better. So that was one. With regard to being a master connector, if you will, I always say, give first, ask second, right? Like you can't go into any real relationship. Now, our relationship's actually pretty interesting because you gave first, right? Right. Right. (laughs) I'm trying to give back as much (laughs) as I can. I'm trying to catch up. But at the end of the day, the majority of my new relationships Out the gate, I'm adding value. And adding value can be a myriad of different things, right? People are like, well, you know, I have to put money in that guy's or that girl's pocket. No, that's not true. There is political capital. There is social capital, right? You know I do a ton of events. Your son's coming to the top golf event, Right. right? So like at the end of the day, if you can share information, share knowledge, share your network, people love that stuff. And I tell people it's so simplistic. Like my job is listening. Listen, we have two ears for a reason and one mouth, right? Listen first, digest it, think about how you can connect the dots, and then speak. And I've operated that way for the last 25 years, and it's been super helpful. Of course, I've had some trials and tribulations, you know, taking some lumps. You know, you always do, though. I mean, that's in anything, whether you're a master connector or not, there are lumps along the way just in life, right? Business, general. So I agree with you, and I agree with a lot of what you said. I don't know if you're aware of this, but... My wife happens to be in executive search. That's her role, but she's very specified. So I've heard and hear stories about other firms Mm. that she's gone up against in some of the stories. And like you said, I think a lot of industries are similar to that picture that you paint in terms of there are a lot of bad actors. There are a lot of actors out there that are just interested in the sale and Mm. closing Mm. the deal. And if you're one of those people who can show and go up and beyond that and show a level of interest and a level of kindness and a level of gratitude and ability to help, it's easy to stand out in that environment and you kind of separate yourself, which it sounds like you've done and you continue to do, which is excellent. So I got to ask you, so obviously there's a difference between being a connector or a master connector and not being one, right? Right. So what is the mindset needed? And I think you kind of touched on this a little bit. What's the mindset needed to be a master connector? If 
people listening to this are entrepreneurial in nature, which we have a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this or people running their own businesses or practices. If I want to be more of a connector, what kind of mindset do I need to do that? Yeah. So great question. And thank you for the kind words. So before we get to mindset, I'll go back one step. So before we get to mindset, think of habits, right? Like in terms of the habits of someone who aspires to be or would like to be a master connector, you have to be authentic. Like that's first, because all the things I'm about to say about being a master connector, if you're disingenuous or not authentic, have no integrity, it's a wrap. That's gonna get sniffed out right away. They don't matter, right? right? They just don't matter. Like you have to have real relationships. You have to be authentic. People need to enjoy your company. Now I'm not saying they need to love you, but enjoy you enough where they're like, hey, I'm gonna invite Larry. I'm going to invite Nkrumah to this dinner and he's not going to embarrass me, <laughs> right? Like, again, those are the basic fundamentals sure. to the mindset. The mindset, in my opinion, should be when you're listening to someone, when you're sitting on the other side of the table or the Zoom screen, right? You should be thinking, again, if you like the person, if you trust the person, and if you respect the person. Those, those are, my- are table stakes. Top three. Table stakes, right? Yes. You need that to even get to step two, really. Absolutely. Yes. If you have those three things, then I'm thinking, huh, how can I help Larry? What would Larry like from Nkrumah? What would he like me to think about when I'm talking to people about his business or him as an executive? And then my CEO says it all the time, collect the dots and connect the dots, right? Which is the root word of master right. connector, connect, right? So collect the dots and connect the dots. In order to collect the dots, you have to listen, right? Because you have to gather them up. And then when I say connect the dots, okay, great. So the Binghamton connection, how many times has that come up in the past year for us? Right. A ton. Right. And it will continue to come up. And then in terms of someone's business, I always ask, what are your pain points? What are the things that you'd like to see more of? Oh my gosh, Nkrumah, I haven't been able to connect with a partner at a professional services firm, give it legal and or accounting. Okay, cool. Well, I work in an accounting firm, so got you there. That's easy. And then two, oh, legal law firms, they refer me business all day long. So I know a bunch of those people. Let me share their LinkedIn profile. So as you know, I do a lot of my business through social media, specifically LinkedIn, a little bit of Instagram, but and a little bit of Facebook, but a ton through LinkedIn. And I'll say, okay, Larry, I think we've done this. Larry, I'm going to send you five profiles of people who I think might be a good intro for you. I'm close with them. Like, I got that. I have it. You tell me if you'd like to meet them. You say, Nkrumah, these three are great. These two, not so much great. I focus on those three. I say, hey, just send me a quick blurb and your email signature so I can share that with my contact. Typically, if you're in my network, you trust me enough to say, hey, if Nkrumah approves, all good. He's (laughs) going to make the intro. But what I do and back to mindset of being a master connector, you must always, this is imperative, you must always get permission from both sides of the house before you make the intro. Right. Because there's nothing worse than getting an intro that I didn't approve of, or I'm like, oh my gosh, that firm doesn't like me, or I don't <laughs> like that person. Right. And you've made an intro and it's now awkward if I don't respond. So just get the approval from both sides. Sure. I think that's very important. And then there's no surprises either as far as people introducing, because I have had that happen where somebody introduces me to somebody and it's a little uncomfortable because we've had experiences either winning business from them 
or mm-hmm. going against them for business and we win it. So right. it's something. So do you think that all businesses, obviously you're a little bit biased to Eisner Amper because you're in this role and, and we think, you know, we're on the same page. We think it's a great role to have, but do you think all businesses need to have a master connector? And if they did, how do you think they would benefit from having that as part of their organization? Sure. So I think every business needs intelligent, thoughtful sales executives, no doubt. Some people will call them rainmakers, right? But every business needs one, at least, to a couple or a few business development executives and people who are risk takers, kind of fearless, right? Because I've said and made introductions and hosted events that are outside of the box. And one could say, why did he do that? Who gave him the authority to do that, right? So it's a little risky. And then if the outcome is business and great things, then no one's asking, right? Right, (laughs) On the front end. So I think every business does need thoughtful, intelligent, connected sales professionals. Now, those sales professionals need sales professionals need to integrate and really immerse themselves in the business, in the company, within the company, get to know your partners, right? There's no way if I was at a law firm, there's no way I could sell legal services to the external marketplace without knowing my partners, right? right. Trusting them, liking them. There are some partners I just steer clear of. There's some partners who steer clear of me. Hey, right. that's the world we live in. Okay. Right. I'm not for everyone, but you want to have that core group. So in addition to that, I feel like, and this might be a little biased, but every sales professional should have some type of persona, some type of brand, right? Because the brand should be you, meaning should be Larry, should be Nkrumah. Yes, I'm wearing the Eisner Amper jersey. I'm actually wearing a polo. Listeners can't see that. But like that jersey can change, right? Unbeknownst to me, who knows what the future brings? Who knows? I don't know. You don't know. Well, I mean, even so much so just in your role within Eisner Amper, right? There are different partners that ultimately you're representing, right? Mm -hmm. You're representing the company. But at the same time, if a specific potential client comes to you, they may be a good fit for one of your partners or multiple but they may not be for others. Exactly. So you have to be able to even wear your different jersey within your organization because you may have to act or come with a different tact for one partner versus another or to prepare the potential client for one partner versus another because there's different opinions, there's different personas there, right? right? So well said. So on that jersey point, so the persona, and I agree with you, you have different jerseys internally, But the persona, the brand that I'm speaking of, that I'm referring to is outside of your organization, right? When people think of you, when they hear your name, when they hear Nkrumah Pierre, do they think taker or giver? I hope to goodness they don't think taker. That's first. If they think taker, I'm dead on arrival, right? (laughs) I want them to think of can help build my business, can help build my network. I want positive things to come to mind. And then, oh, by the way, because they're following me on social, Facebook, IG, what have you, and then LinkedIn, of course. And then they're like, okay, Nkrumah is a connector. If he can't help me, I know he can get me to someone who can help me. Great. That should be the aspirations, I think, of most sales professionals or business development professionals, because you'll be so shocked. People come to me and say, hey, my son wants to go to Lafayette. Great. My son wants to play lacrosse. Awesome. Has nothing to do with accounting. Zero. Right. And then we start talking and they say, oh, well, I work in this. I run this business. I'm a CFO of that. Do you think you could also introduce me internally to one of your partners that does X? 
right? So they have to have, I think, good salespeople have to have some type of brand and or following to be successful. Because listen, I've seen it. The pandemic, which we're still in, has been awful and hopefully is dissipating a little bit. But what I've seen during the pandemic is that a lot of people got exposed, right? A lot of people, just because they were part of the machine, they got leads, they got opportunities, right? They didn't have to host events. Events were there, they would just have to walk in, right? So I had to create events. I created right. over 200 virtual events over the last two years. The outcome was hundreds of thousands of dollars of new business, but like I created them. I got clever, sweat working, Peloton workouts. Right. We did some Peloton yeah, rides. We did. We your did. numbers are outstanding. <laughs> and <laughs> cocktail events. I baked cookies on my computer with my son. Like all different types of things where you have a following, people showed up and then they would tell their friends and they would invite their friends. So you must have a brand. Yeah. I mean, we were in a period where things weren't just automatically happening. So you really had to get creative in order to create things to happen. Right. And at least whether new business came of it or not, at least stay relevant and, yes. and be known that, hey, during this difficult time, you were there and we were there to help people through that, you know, and we did the same thing through events and through communications. Again, it wasn't necessarily for the end result of new business. It was to make sure that people realized we were there to help them and we were there shoulder to shoulder with them through this whole right. pandemic. So I find it interesting that you're not a CPA. As somebody, business development, selling for the firm, et cetera, do you think that that's a positive, meaning it helps you, the fact that you're not a CPA, or do you think it would be more, even more helpful to you if you were? Great question. So intuitively... One would think not being a CPA at a certified public accounting firm <laughs> is a major detriment and puts you at a disadvantage. Counterintuitive. Yes, yes. So intuitively, you'd think that not having a CPA at a CPA firm <laughs> is bad, right? Like that's going to hurt you. So it's absolutely, in my opinion, counterintuitive because it has helped me tremendously. So what does that mean? So, Well, I guess when your client or a potential client doesn't understand something and you don't understand it. Then you, you know you don't have to feel bad. You're kind of shoulder to shoulder with the client and saying to the partner, "Hey, they don't get it. I don't get it. You got to explain this on a true. level where we get it." Very true. We're on the same side of the table, but that's a great point. In addition to, I always tell, I give this scenario where, <clears throat> let's say there's a legal event for lawyers, right, mm -hmm. at the Harvard Club, and all these lawyers, general counsel, in-house counsel partners, managing partners at law firms are all congregated at this event at the Harvard Club. Awesome. Everyone's a lawyer. So they're networking. Some people might be unhappy. Some guys and girls might want to recruit someone, right? That's happening. And then comes in an accountant. I'm the only accounting firm in the room. Right. So I'm not talking legal jargon. I'm talking about different things. So what I'm saying there is I want to be in rooms where I am the only of because I'm actually like the shining thing in the room, right? Where it's like people gravitate towards that. They're like, huh, this is interesting. He works in an accounting firm. Not a lawyer. Great. Hold on. And he's not an accountant. <laughs> what the? Double whammy. Huh? And How's people, that work? <laughs> right. And people are intrigued. Listen, I openly tell people I am not a CPA. I'm not an accountant. I'm proud of that. Some people might be embarrassed. Right. I'm proud of it. I'm a business development sales marketing person at my firm. And it has been tremendous because, again, as I told you earlier, my conversations are around building rapport first, right. listening to issues. I'm really good at listening. 
I think I'm fairly good at talking. And then I connect the dots. And then they're like, oh, hold on. We spoke at a networking event. You weren't taking notes. How do you remember that? That's my superpower. My right. superpower is remembering conversations, remembering pain points, being a problem solver, and then following up. I'm a savage when it comes to follow up. I'll tell you, after you said that, I'm thinking we're very much alike because I have that same superpower. I can meet somebody, names I'm not so great with, but faces, I could be predominantly in New York. I could go down to Florida, another state in the U.S., run into somebody, and I'm like, I know you from somewhere. We met. I could even say where we met, what the conversation was. I may not remember their name. I may have to go on LinkedIn and take a few guesses and see a picture and try to match it up, but I have a similar ability in that regard, and it's super helpful when you're trying to connect people. So I want to change gears for a minute and talk about something a little bit more serious, which actually leads into kind of what you said about being different in a room, right? So accounting, like my profession, financial services is not that diverse. Financial services in particular, the typical profile is male, older, white, gray hair, which I guess I'm a couple of those. Uh <laughs> I'm going towards the gray hair, but what's the impact that you think you can make? Because you're obviously somebody who's in a, also a profession that's not diverse. What is the impact you think you can make on the industry, on your community, and really on the world as a black man in an accounting firm? Great question. Listen, I'm very direct and I love direct questions where you can be honest and just have candor. So I think first and foremost, leading by example, right? So I'm tired of the lip service, right? I'm tired of people who talk about what they want to do, right? Just like any wealthy person you meet, they never tell you they're rich or they're wealthy. They just show you, right? right? You look at their statements. You look at the way they carry themselves, right? Like you just know, you know, yeah, I know. 100%, right? yeah. <laughs> so when it comes to DE&I and it comes to diversifying a workforce, one, as a company, as an organization, you have to lead by example. And when I say lead by example, you have to, and again, I'm not asking for any handouts. It's never been my thing. My parents have always taught me. It's a meritocracy. Work very hard. You get to the top. Right. And if not, if you're working hard and you're producing and you're not getting to the top, you leave and you go to somewhere that supports you and that appreciates sure. you. It's very easy. So with me as a black man at an accounting firm, I want to rise to the top, right? I want to be a partner one day. That's a goal of mine, right? Okay. And I want to show others that you can achieve it by not being a CPA. Now, I'm not saying you, let's say you're a, an audit professional and they say you must be a CPA to, do, to sign off on X. I'm not saying go that route and don't be a CPA. Right. No, I'm saying there are other avenues within these firms, right? So I'm saying understand what you're really, really good at, hone your craft, my craft is sales, so that's what I do all day. If you are supposed to be a corporate tax accountant, be really good at that first, mm -hmm. right? And then try to elevate and be good at additional things. But getting laser focused back to DE&I, so folks, companies that I've seen will say, all right, well, we want to hire a chief diversity officer. I'm like, okay, cool. That's a great idea. Awesome. And that's all they want to do. That's nonsense. You can't have a homogenous workforce hire one black man or woman and expect everything in the culture to change. That's nonsense, right? right? If you have a toxic culture and you hire one person to deal with that issue, that one person cannot change an entire culture by themselves unless they're a superhero. And I want to meet that person. Please introduce me. Right. It has to come from the top. You have to get outside of your comfort zone, right? So I went to Lafayette College. 
again, homogenous student body, right? But lacrosse I, player too, and I play lacrosse. If that's that's <laughs> a pretty homogenous. Uh, there you go, sport. But I'm true to who I am, right? And I also would talk to my friends on the basketball team, talk to my friends who are purely academic. I would kind of branch out, and that's how I built my network and built you know the friends that I have today. Same thing with DE and I. We cannot go to the same schools. We can't go to just a Lafayette, a Hofstra, a Lehigh, and Ryder University and expect the same results, right? Sorry, expect different results. In order to get a different outcome, you now need to start recruiting at different schools. HBCUs. Exactly, HBCUs, the Howard Universities of the world, the Morehouse of the world, right? That's one. Also, try Adelphi, right? Try Nassau Community. Try different schools that, schools that you might kind of be taken aback at first, but I'm telling you, there are diamonds in the rough at every school. And not for nothing, in your industry, right, the accounting profession right now, my understanding is, and all the numbers you're reading, are dying for good people. Absolutely. Right? Good people. 100%. Good people who could work in the accounting profession. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, open up that funnel to a much larger pool, right? Absolutely. And then after you've done that, <laughs> so half the battle is getting said person in the door, in the seat. The other part of the battle, in my opinion, is grooming said person in the seat and making them feel comfortable in the seat. And oh, by the way, supporting them to elevate to a different seat. So you can't, like I said, you can't just have a chief diversity officer check box and not hire black and brown people. That doesn't work, right? Because right? then said person is alienated. You cannot expect <laughs> to get people of color at the partnership level or partner level if you have very few at a staff one level, right? right? Like it doesn't make sense. So, oh, and by the way, there are other things where you can also acquire black and or brown owned accounting firms, right? Like that's Good another point. thing, right? Because, yeah. you know, businesses are acquiring businesses all day long. Maybe you acquire a business that has a partnership full of black and brown executives. Maybe that's a route. Right. So my point is, for me, this, <laughs> sadly, because of where I grew up and the rooms that I've been in, and there's definitely an element of privilege there, I'll admit that, and the schools I've gone to, and the internships I've had, they have prepared me for this day, right? Like, I look out, I'm, I'm like, oh, I put my, my lacrosse locker was next to a guy just like that, and I can't stand him, right? Now, listen, that's me making a judgment call, but I've met these people before, right? right? I know how to deal with these people and different types of personalities. So my point is, Unless or until said companies and their executives kind of take a step back and look at the big picture and say, huh, what schools are we recruiting from? Okay. Right. What programs are we doing for the people of color at our organization today? I'm not talking about February Black History Month. Like, give me a break. Like, dude, that right there, if that's your focus and your goal, I'm, I'm out. Right. <laughs> I'm out, right? Do, I mean, do you feel a level of, I don't know if the word responsibility or like mm. weight on your shoulders mm. to kind of help? move this thing along or you feel it's like a too big a project kind of thing? I've always said this. In terms of institutional racism, and again, I'm not here complaining. I'm very happy with where I am and how things are going, right? Of course, everything can be improved, but I'm not complaining. I'm purely saying in the grand scheme of things, if someone, if a demographic of people have been disenfranchised or have been discriminated against, let's say call it institutional racism. Sure. Said group that has been discriminated against or disenfranchised shouldn't have to create the solution. Since when do victims have to create solutions for the problems, right? right? Said people who are continuing to promote that institutional racism should open their eyes and fix it. Right. That's how I think of it. Right. 
So Fair enough. <clears throat> when I think of it, I say, okay, is it my problem to improve upon? Sure. It's my ability to be an ally and think of innovative ways as to di- diversify my company and my organization and our clients as well. Right. But I'm a business developer. That right. is my job. That's how right. I feed my family. Fair right? enough. Fair I'm enough. not a chief diversity officer. I will absolutely support anyone in the diversity seat, but it's my job to say, hey, here, here's what I'm seeing in the market. Here are my relationships. Here are the schools we can recruit at. I'll walk you in. There you go. Here are the organizations that I know that, or we hired a consultant recently. Here is a DE&I consultant who can help us and walk us into new relationships. Right. But if it were something I did or that I had to solve, I couldn't be in the business development seat. Yeah, well, it would take far too much time, effort, and energy. I mean, we're not going to solve it on this podcast, that's for sure. But I appreciate the open dialogue. Sure. Hopefully, things are moving in the right direction. I know in my industry, financial services, there's been a lot of efforts in the right direction. Not as much traction as most people would like, but it's one of those things that I think we always want it to happen faster and quicker than it actually does. But if we start pushing the ball in the right direction, eventually it'll start on that downhill trajectory and just start rolling and taking everybody with us. So thank you for sharing that. So listen, we'll go from something very serious to maybe a little bit more lighthearted, but what's the next big thing for Nkrumah Pierre? What's the next big thing for you? Sure. The next big thing for me. So I want to level up within my organization, right? So, you know, I want to be looked at as a leader. I want to be able to develop people and help, as they say, elevate others. That's a big goal of mine. In terms of the next big things or big thing that's coming up, I would say really becoming more focused on the types of organizations I network with, right? So from my leaders, what I hear is Nkrumah, you know, we want you to specialize, right? So I've become like the private equity person at my firm. I'm not doing taxes and audits because that would not go well, but I'm starting to bring in more private equity companies to our firm, right? So I'm spending a lot more time within private equity, real estate. My dad's a developer. He's retired, right? My first, first job before executive recruiting was at M&T Bank, which is across the street, hilarious, by the way, doing commercial real estate finance in Manhattan. So real estate, I understand real estate. Now, I don't understand the accounting side of real estate, which I have to learn, but I didn't understand private equity two years ago. Right. So private equity and real estate have been big. And then also PBS, private business services, which is what I said earlier, privately held companies, multi-generationally owned businesses that are anywhere from that 50 to $300 million in top line revenue. I've been focusing on those three things. And what's really beautiful about it is that <clears throat> when you think private equity, private equity, they invested in Eisner Amper, but private equity is buying up a lot of these commercial businesses, mm-hmm. right? So private business services, those same companies become portfolio companies of the private equity funds. So what I found is that it's a really, really nice connection Sure. where some of the companies we're, we're doing tax and audit are getting invested or getting purchased by the private equity funds. So we're actually doing business on both sides, not being conflicted, right? right? And connecting the dots where I might even talk to a CFO and he mentions or she mentions or they mentioned that we're looking to be acquired. I'm like, well, hold on. What's your EBITDA, right? right? Like, what is your industry? How many offices do you have? Okay, cool. We actually know private equity firms. And listen, I will remain completely independent. Keep your options open. But I can make an introduction. An email introduction can happen. And then you guys handle it from there. So we're seeing like this really nice ecosystem between PBS, private equity, and then also real estate, and then real estate, private equity as well. So I'm focusing a lot there. 
you know, I want to be the go-to person internally for those relationships and just trying to continue to grind. There you go. Well, listen, thanks for sharing that. And we end every show by asking each of our guests the same question. We've already talked a little bit about mindset, but this is the Midland Money Mindset. So (laughs) what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I did a couple things this morning, as I told you. One, I took my son to school, which I love doing every morning. I have to interrupt for a second. I miss that. My boys are out of the house now, but that was something I cherished every day. I drove them to school just about every day, which was a great individual time with them. Yep. I can't wait for my kids to grow up and also get the next level of happiness that you are getting from from your boys. And then two, I solved the problem this morning. So I pulled the car out of the garage, jumped in the car, you know, had my golf clubs in the front, put my son in the back in the car seat, and I'm driving down the street, right down my block, and I get an alert that says low air in tire. I'm like, oh gosh, goodness. So I go to the gas station, number one, put in air, the machine's broken. Go to gas station number two. Mind you, we're already late for school. This doesn't sound like joy to me so far. I'm going to get you the joy, I promise. (laughs) We'll get there. Get to the second one. And there's a huge landscaping truck with the trailer and, you know, the guys are in front of the air machine. I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be like 30 minutes late. And then I have to come here and record this podcast. So I'm stressed. I'm annoyed. And I'm like, stay cool, Nkrumah. Your son is watching you. And I held back, right? I was was telling the guys, please move. (laughs) But I kept it together. And then the guy looked at me, saw my son in the car, said, hold on. Didn't say much. Just said, hold on. He jumped in his car. You got a compressor, which is like a, you know, um, air compressor. Yeah. An air compressor that is, you know, you can just take it out of your car and pull it up to the tire. And he pumped up my tire. I guess that was the joy, right? Dude, it was so much joy because he fixed the (laughs) issue. I feel the sunbeam coming down right now. He fixed the issue. My son saw me hold it together, (laughs) right? Within reason. And, you know, I said, thank you. I actually gave this person $10 because I was so thankful that they helped me in this scenario. So that brought me joy. Amazing. Great. So listen, we're going to have all of your information in the show notes, but if people want to contact you, reach out to you, learn more about you, what's the easiest and best way for them to do that? Sure. So at Nkrumah Pierre on LinkedIn, that's easy. You can message me that way. Of course, Larry, you can share my email address. It's totally cool. But I'm on LinkedIn daily. I'm on my phone on LinkedIn, on my desktop, and then also my email as well. Great. Okay. Well, we'll have that all in the show notes. I really appreciate you taking out time to uh, spend with us today and make it a great day. Awesome. Thank you, Larry. I want to thank Nkrumah Pierre for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Nkrumah is a master connector and that has served him well in helping those that he knows and doesn't know to get connected to the right people. Whether it's in business or life, he's always thinking of how he can help others. Nkrumah is a role model to all those that may be thinking about entering the accounting profession and are from a diverse background. He has and continues to make a positive impact for the next generation. Nkrumah and Eisner Amper can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website 
or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.